0: Welcome to this episode of the SCTS Education Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Toulon, and I'm one of the cardiothoracic trainees based up in the northwest of the UK. I've cunningly called this part of the podcast series The Extra Perspective, and that's because it's based on the uh, perspectives in Cardiothoracic Surgery book, which is published in conjunction with the SCTS University each year. Here, we'll delve in a little bit more depth to some of the topics uh, which are featured in the book and should hopefully whet your appetite for reading the chapters themselves. In this episode, I'm speaking to Dr Anoop Haradas, who is a consultant clinical oncologist based at the Clatterbridge Cancer Centre. We'll be talking about radiotherapy, its evolution and application in lung cancer therapy. So I hope you find this episode interesting and useful and I hope it helps shed a little bit more light on uh, some of the topics that we don't always get to examine in great depth in our day-to-day clinical practice. So the chapter itself is all about um, advances in radiotherapy um, in in lung cancer. It's a really good overview of um, of radiotherapy itself, as well as the sort of evolution of it and, and how it's developed in lung cancer therapy. Um, and I thought, first of all, one of the really useful things would be to uh, talk a little bit about how it actually works.
1: Yeah. So uh, radiotherapy is essentially X-ray treatment. Uh, X-rays are a form of electromagnetic radiation, just like visible light, microwaves, etc., but with a lot higher energy associated with them. Mm -hmm. Um, The higher energy X-rays that uh, we use for things like diagnosis, like a chest X-ray or a CT scan, um, we kind of ramp up the energy of them up to a thousand times, and then that's what's used for radiotherapy mm. treatment. Mm. Uh, these go by several names. Uh, some of them they call photons. Some of them they call gamma rays. Uh, some of them they call it megavoltage X rays. So mm. they're all interchangeable names, basically. Ah. <laughs> one gray is uh, the energy absorbed per unit mass. So one joule per kilogram is one gray right so, okay. so the energy used in three grays is about uh, 600 uh, ct scans of your chest basically so okay that's the extent of it
0: and what does that actually do to tissue when it hits it
1: uh, so essentially x-rays uh, can penetrate right through your body mm-hmm. they're a form of energy called ionizing radiation so mm-hmm. when they go through the body they knock off electrons from atoms within the tissue mm-hmm. And this basically converts molecules, usually water, because that's what most of our tissues is made of, Mm -hmm. into ionized tissue like hydroxyl ions. Mm. And these are very reactive chemical compounds. So Mm -hmm. they kind of bind to whatever is next to them and either alter them or damage them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when they do this to biologically important molecules like DNA, uh, they cause a certain amount of breakage in the DNA which is either a single-strand or a double-strand break in the DNA. Mm-hmm. And that's what's responsible for the effect of radiation on on these uh, human cells mm-hmm. or any, any cells.
0: And are uh, cancer cells particularly sensitive to radiation? Uh,
1: not, not particularly. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, the thing that kind of drives the sensitivity of any tissue to radiation is how much dna it has on board Mm -hmm. and also whether or not it has access to oxygen because oxygen essentially fixes this damage that the radiation causes the thing that differentiates kind of normal tissues from cancer cells is that your normal cells have a very large capacity to repair a lot of dna damage so they can detect and repair the damage within a few hours Whereas cancer cells, because of their kind of the way that they became a cancer with defects in both the DNA uh, structure, detection of damage and repair mechanisms, they cannot repair that in, in good enough time and when they try to grow, they die.
0: And is that what happens, what the term tumour repopulation is about then? Uh, the.
1: So- that's a slightly different concept which mm-hmm. we only found out um, when we started treating people with radiation right. uh, in that so if you take a, a lump of tumor mm-hmm. uh, not all of it consists of cells which are always growing right. so there will be a there be a proportion of it which has access to uh, good blood vessel supply nutrients and oxygen and therefore is actively growing there's uh, proportions of the tumor which are usually kind of uh, more central, which don't have much access to the oxygen and nutrients, and they're essentially dormant. So when you start killing cancer cells which are growing, which is what radiation and most other cancer treatments do, mm-hmm. uh, the blood vessels and nutrients are, in a sense, shunted or moved to areas which did not have them before. Okay. So the tumors which were dormant start growing.
0: Okay. So, this,
1: this is what tumor repopulation is. So, in, if you take a, a tumor which you're irradiating roughly around 2 or 3 weeks, you, up to 4 weeks into the radiation treatment, the, the nutrition supply, the oxygen supply, uh, the kind of the milieu inside the tumor changes to a more favorable one for the cells which are not so favorable before. And the rate of growth of these tumor cells starts to accelerate.
0: Ah, okay, so that's what well,
1: tumor repopulation is.
0: I see. So you have to accommodate for the sort of previously dormant tumor as well as the sort of more active tumor at the beginning. Um, exactly. And is that how? Uh, so I know we have to give um, radiotherapy in fractions. So if yeah. the fraction, uh, or sort of the time between fractions, is that determined by this um, this sort of cycle of the tumor, or is that something slightly different?
1: To an extent. I mean, one of the points of fractionating the treatment is that uh, whenever a cell goes through its cell cycle, there are certain points in the cell cycle where it's very uh, resistant to radiotherapy because it doesn't have any free DNA floating around to get damaged. Right. And there are other times in the cell cycle where it has a lot of DNA on board, typically just before it divides into cells where it's very sensitive to radiotherapy. So fractionation in a way is a way of making sure that you are uh, dealing with cells which are at different time points in the cell cycle and kind of bringing more cells into the sensitive stage as that treatment goes on. The the second aspect is to do with uh, essentially a way of making this treatment safe for normal tissues around the tumor. Mm -hmm. So although we need uh, a large amount of radiation to sterilise or kill the tumour, that amount of dose will not be tolerated by the normal tissues that are adjacent to it, Mm. whereas if you divide it up and give at least six hours between sessions, the normal tissues have a chance of repairing that damage each day and therefore they will survive the treatment.
0: I didn't realise it was as little as six hours actually that you could have between radiotherapy sessions, you know, in principle.
1: The six hour time frame is something that was determined using radiation experiments which are going back uh, four or five decades even Mm -hmm. Uh, and they've kind of determined that that's roughly the time it takes for normal tissue to do uh, 80 or 90% of the DNA repair that's required. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The longer the time you leave between uh, treatments the better it is for the normal tissue because it's able to recover more and more of its repair work mm-hmm. uh, but this is to a large extent depend on how much dose you're giving per session as well mm-hmm. so this six hour time frame seems to uh, matter when the dose per session is relatively small so about uh, what we call conventional fractionation so about two gray or three gray per fraction Right. But once you start giving much bigger doses per session, where what like you do with Sabre treatment and things, mm-hmm. the repair is never complete, irrespective of the time that you seem to give in between. And that's why it's called ablative treatment, because you're essentially killing off everything within that area that you're treating.
0: Right, okay. Um, I'll just go on to uh, a couple of the terms that are used um, to describe radiotherapy. Um, things like a gross tumour volume and clinical target volume and things. Um, so how, how are these all involved when it comes to um, planning radiotherapy?
1: So when, when you plan radiotherapy, usually you get some imaging done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for lung cancer, it's usually a CT scan of the chest, mm-hmm. and you use that information to essentially contour on the CT scan slices what you feel is the visible tumour. So this will involve both the primary tumour, any lymph nodes, and any areas that are deemed at risk between these two. That area is called the gross tumour volume. It's essentially the visible Mm -hmm. tumour. The second bit, the clinical target volume, is essentially an expansion to account for any microscopic spread of the disease. Right. And this is, this is largely derived from pathological studies, which were done a couple of decades ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they basically removed tumors surgically, mapped them out both radiologically and uh, clinically, and determined on microscopy how much further the tumor extended uh, based on histology. And the ballpark figure is that it extends for about 0. 0.6 to 0. 0.8 centimeters from the visible edge. Right. So essentially you grow the gross tumour volume mm. by that amount to, to form the clinical target. And
0: in terms of planning target volume, does that then incorporate all of these different regions?
1: Yeah. so mm-hmm. it's essentially growing your volume. So the gross tumour will be the smallest area Yeah. and then another, say six to eight millimetres on that will be your clinical target volume. Mm-hmm and then you have to take into account that tumors don't stay still during treatment the patient's breathing so it shuttles up and down forward backward left right mm-hmm. uh, and that when you when they lie on the couch they're not always in exactly the same position yes. and that they, when they swallow something their esophagus moves or they have palpitations their heart moves so you have to incorporate all of these what are called setup errors mm-hmm. and there are fairly uh, robust Uh, kind of algorithms which can allow you to calculate how much movement is likely to be there for a certain size of tumor and this allows you to expand your clinical target volume to your planning target volume nowadays we have fairly uh, sophisticated way of determining movement Uh, so we do something called a four-dimensional ct scan uh, which is essentially mapping out how much the tumor is breathing uh, moving during breathing mm-hmm. and this is mapped out to their respiratory cycle and averaged over time.
0: So the planning target volume is kind of all, uh, more dynamic really because it depends on all, all the kind of the moving structures So it plan. incorporates
1: all mm. the possible movement of the tumor during treatment.
0: Mm. Ooh, I thought the next thing I might speak to you about and Sabre and how it's different from conventional radiotherapy. So yeah, if you, if you could go through the difference of the two, then that'd be great, thank you.
1: So uh, SABR is short for Stereotactic Ablative Body Radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in essence, it's a more sophisticated way of delivering the radiation. And kind of the defining feature is that you tend to deliver a much higher dose per session of treatment uh, when, when you treat the tumor. And most of the time, you're treating smaller targets, smaller volumes, Mm. uh, so that you're keeping the toxicity of the treatment lower. Mm -hmm. Um, So the best way to define this would be, say, if you have a cake, which is the dose of the radiotherapy that you need to deliver. With conventional radiotherapy, you're cutting the cake into multiple uh, small slices or fractions. Mm-hmm. to deliver that dose whereas with sabre you're cutting it into five or six large chunks and you're still delivering the same dose of radiation within a smaller uh, time frame and that makes it biologically a lot more effective as a treatment
0: mm. yeah and you were saying before how it's this how it's ablative so it's completely getting rid of all the all the cellular structures in that region.
1: Both conventional radiation and uh, SABER are curative mm-hmm. in nature. Yeah. Uh, just that the, the, the tolerance of the treatment when you're treating a smaller volume is better than when you're treating a larger volume. Mm-hmm. And because SABER uses a lot of uh, technology to guide the treatment. Uh, it becomes a little bit more accurate in delivering the treatment Mm -hmm. and these same techniques are being applied to what was traditionally called conventional radiation as well so it's making that treatment a lot more accurate as a result of extensions
0: from this. Um, one thing I'm not quite clear on is with the conventional radiotherapy, you'd have the clinical target volume where it's going to be an area outside the, tu- outside the solid tumour itself which is going to be affected. So you're giving a radiotherapy to that region as well. And yet with Sabre, you're able to target it in a smaller region does that mean you are you including the clinical target volume within that region, or or is it or is it a sort of separate disease you're treating in a way, a separate sort of tumor, um, so you, you don't need quite such a broad Sorry, field.
1: one one of the issues with mm. the clinical target volume is mm. that there is considerable variability. Mm. So it's the same study which established that you need to give at least six millimeters CTV margin for squamous cancers and 8 millimeters for adenocarcinomas, mm. also showed that in the lymph nodes mm. uh, you only needed a 03 uh, centimeter margin, so only a 3 millimeter margin, mm-hmm. even for adenocarcinomas. So within structures there seems to be variation. The size of the tumour seems to matter. So for smaller tumours you don't seem to need as much uh, margin around it mm-hmm. because the microscopic disease seems to be proportional to the size of the tumor as well. Right. Um, the, that's why, with the saber trials, the, the the older trials essentially did give a CTV margin, and that did increase the amount of toxicity that mm. came with it. Right. Whereas the more modern trials got rid of the CTV margin and just gave uh, uh, just GTVs directly to PTV margin. Yeah. And that didn't seem to show any difference in its uh, clinical and survival and local control outcomes. Mm. Um, the biology behind this is still being studied mm-hmm. because Sabre seems to introduce other methods of cell death uh, apart from just a simple DNA damage related one. Okay, so there's two or three types of immune related uh, cell kill which happens with Sabre which doesn't with conventional treatment. Right there seems to be an element of vascular damage so it kills small vessels within the Mm tumour and that in turn leads to cell death as well so there's a lot of other mechanisms in play which are not fully understood yet.
0: OK, excellent. Um, so in, in the chapter, um, I think one of the really useful things is how you've divided up, well, all the tumours that we'd, we'd potentially treat. So um, so if we talk first about the ones that we'd be using, I've said medically inoperable peripheral tumours. Um, so this is where, pr- traditionally, it would have been a conventional radiotherapy option for these patients. Um, and now Sabre is becoming uh, more more of a suitable option for them now, um, with an improved survival time and reducing local recurrences, is is that correct? So
1: I think in the past we always used to use conventional radiotherapy for these early lung uh, cancers, which were not operable, Mm -hmm. Uh, and these did provide a a decent control rate, but they didn't kind of quite reach the realms of what surgery could offer. Mm -hmm and that's one of the things that the saber has kind of brought to the table in a sense you're getting a control rate of about 85 90 percent for the tumor Mm. uh, locally and that's what you want uh, and you you want it to be in the same ballpark as surgery if you're going to offer it as a treatment Mm -hmm. rather than 60 or 70 percent which is what conventional radiation would offer Mm -hmm. so um, and the the other kind of positive factors of the saber is that it's delivered in a lot fewer sessions compared to the radiation, mm-hmm. conventional radiation. whereas the conventional radiation will be offered in 20 or 30 fractions over four to six weeks. Sabre can be delivered within a week or two at most, mm. and that's a lot more convenient for the patients. One of the biggest kind of selling points of this is that the, the, the toxicity that you seem to get from Sabre is a lot lower when you're treating peripheral tumour because you're not treating as much normal tissue. Mm. So in this setting, I would say, in medically inoperable peripheral early lung cancers, Sabre would be the standard of care. Mm. And there's been a couple of uh, multinational uh, phase three trials which have shown uh, improvements in both local control and uh, survival now.
0: So can Sabre be offered everywhere? is, it, is there sort of specific equipment that's needed that, that isn't necessarily available in all centres or is or is that no longer relevant, is Sabre something that now can be delivered in all regions?
1: So I think if you have a, a modern linear accelerator with a decent medical physics department, you mm-hmm. can offer Sabre. Mm-hmm. There are some technical requirements from the machine point of view mm-hmm. and also from a quality assurance point of view. because such high doses are being delivered relatively rapidly to small areas if you don't have quality control you end up uh, with what's called a geographical miss essentially you miss the tumour and you treat the bit of lung next to it Right. and that basically means that your cure rates are abysmal so there have been a, a couple of studies which have essentially showed that if you don't have adequate quality assurance in place you will get very poor outcomes. Uh, That level of quality assurance uh, requires that you treat certain volumes of patients. So similar to surgery where high volume centers have much better outcomes when you're doing those kind of operations,
0: Mm.
1: it's similar to that. So if you're only going to treat one or two say patients a year, your outcomes tend to be poorer. Whereas if you're treating 100, 150 patients a year, your outcomes tend to be better. Mm.
0: So coming on to the next category um, that you describe, um, central early stage but inoperable non-small cell lung cancers and the role that radiotherapy has to play in these. Um, you've included the diagram from the International um, Association for Study of Lung Cancer, um, which is the peripheral zone and the central zone of um, that radiotherapy can be delivered. And, and this is to do with the distance from the mediastinal structures, I think, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so there's Mm -hmm. medistyle structures, brachial plexus, and the proximal airways. Mm -hmm. uh, Those seem to be the structures which are most at risk of damage from high doses of radiation. Uh, In particular, the bronchi, the large bronchi, and the pulmonary vessels seem to be uh, more susceptible to high-dose radiation-related damage. Mm -hmm. And this is a bit of a dichotomy in that there's There's been a lot of retrospective studies that have looked at central tumors being treated, mm-hmm. and that showed that this was a very safe treatment to deliver, mm-hmm. whereas all the prospective studies that have looked into it have shown fairly high degrees of toxicity, including death from pulmonary hemorrhage uh, so mm-hmm. that's why there's kind of a still a safety concern about treating these tumors. Right. Um the, the consensus that's emerged more recently is that you need to split up the radiation dose a bit more than what you would do for a peripheral tumour.
0: So do you deliver um, radiotherapy within that two centimetre zone if, at reduced doses?
1: The latest iteration of the, the Sabre protocols that uh, as an institute have been involved in kind Mm -hmm. of generating Mm -hmm. do allow for treatment of the tumors within what what you this is kind of central zone was called Mm -hmm. the no-fly zone Mm. and so we are allowed to fly in the no-fly zone now okay uh, (laughs) but at at a lower dose so instead of using uh, three fraction or five fraction regimes we now use eight fraction regimes
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: so that seems to be a bit more tolerable Mm -hmm. but even within this group of central tumors there are uh, a set of tumours which are prohibitively toxic to treat mm-hmm. but these are essentially tumours which are sitting either on or immediately adjacent to the trachea and the main bronchi right. so these are kind of been further subdivided into ultra central tumours right. which are essentially within one centimetre of the trachea and the main bronchi mm-hmm. and these cannot be treated with sabre safely at the moment.
0: Right. Okay. So um, so then, just moving on to the, the sort of the next um, region of, of tumours that, that you're treating with SABRE, particularly is the um, peripheral tumours that are also potentially operable as well. Um, and this moves into a group of patients who are um, who are very high risk, and using SABRE really as an alternative for them. And I understand this is this has sort of been a bit of a um, uh, an area where we haven't got an awful lot of complete decision making as to whether saber is a a sort of equivalent um therapy really at the moment um, i'm i'm i've written down here that the rcts have struggled um not always been able to recruit patients um to directly compare these two options um, and Is that because patients are choosing to go for surgery over Sabre or is there other reasons behind that? Um,
1: I, I think it's because of a lack of equipoise, so mm. in order to recruit into a trial both the clinicians and the patient should believe that either treatment is equally good mm. and that belief doesn't exist in I would say the vast majority of the clinicians treating lung cancer. Mm-hmm. There's been Trials run essentially in every corner of the globe, which have failed to recruit. Mm. Uh, and essentially, the the way around it, which a couple of trials in the U.S. are now uh, running and successfully recruiting to this to answer this question, is to remove the clinician from the f- from the picture altogether. Valor V A L O R trial, which mm-hmm. is looking at this exact question, mm-hmm. as to whether or surgery is good in in peripheral operable tumors. Mm-hmm and they are looking at patients with early lung cancers who get told by the uh, lung cancer nurse or a trial coordinator as to the two options and then and then after randomization they go see their respective clinician right so so they, that that appears to be the only way they can generate enough evidence to uh, to answer this question oh. Um, as things stand, I think surgery should be the first option
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because it has shown that it has better survival outcomes. Mm-hmm. But these do come with a few confounders in that by de- by definition a lot of operable patients who will be fit enough for surgery will have better performance status, better physiological reserve mm-hmm. compared to patients who are not uh, opting for that as it were so um, I guess with Sabre from my perspective the plus uh, the plus point for the patient is that it doesn't necessarily remove the option of surgery if you do have local failure.
0: Yeah if the Sabre um, fails to successfully treat the tumor how do you detect that is that t- detected on serial CT scans or is that detected on biopsies? Um,
1: yes it's mostly an image guided uh, mechanism at present yeah Uh, There are a few studies looking into both CT and PET-CT criteria to diagnose local failure in SABRE. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, at present it's kind of a very, uh, is it increasing in size and so on. Uh, But having said that, the local failure rates with SABRE are relatively low. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the time the failure tends to occur in the regional lymph nodes or in metastatic uh, settings.
0: Yeah. Um, And one thing I just wanted to ask as well is, is obviously we, we know the side effects of surgery and the complications that can happen there. You've talked about a grading system for toxicity for radiotherapy. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: So in the peripheral tumours, uh, as I said, the saber is fairly well tolerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main side effect appears to be in the acute setting fatigue most for most people. Mm-hmm. There's a, a CTCA uh, grading for all this kind of... Uh, both acute and late toxicity from radiotherapy right um, the other peripheral um, side effects in the acute setting tend to be pneumonitis uh, so a lot of people will have um, a degree of breathlessness but uh, to I would say about 80 to 85 percent of them this is not clinically significant enough to warrant any intervention in the longer term, these changes usually settle over a four to six week time frame even without any intervention Mm -hmm. but you do get a degree of scarring in the area and fibrosis in the area that you treat tends to be worse in people with lower lobe tumors compared to upper lobe Uh, the the impact of the fibrosis on their respiratory function Mm -hmm. Um, and as you follow them up over 2-3 uh, years, you tend to notice a bit of stabilization of their overall respiratory reserve mm-hmm. compared to conventional radiation where you see a steady deterioration. But so that seems to be related to the volume that you're treating, which is relatively small and safe. Obviously, when you're treating high dose of radiation to areas such as bone and heart and uh, um, blood vessels, there's a risk of introducing scar tissue and weakening of these structures with them. So there is, for example, if the tumour is close to the chest wall and you've treated the rib to the treatment dose, you have about a 2-4% to 4% risk of getting insufficiency fractures of the rib mm. over the first year or two post-treatment. The risk to the heart at present, there, there are um, case reports published of things like uh, pericarditis, um, calcification of the coronary arteries and uh, bronchial and uh, thrombosis in the large blood vessels. Um, Those kind of mediastinal type side effects are seen in less than 1% of all the cases Mm -hmm. that you treat.
0: So I thought we'd change tack just slightly and move into um, the use of radiotherapy in the multi-modality setting. So um, this is for the advanced cancers and um one of the things that I've, uh, I, I've picked out here is the use of different um, phrases like adjuvant, neoadjuvant and induction, because I think one of the things with radiotherapy in the multimodality setting is that it is multimodality. So we're not using it on its own. And I guess that's where all those phrases uh, intertwine with it really. Um, so I wonder if you could define um, adjuvant, neoadjuvant and induction uh, in okay. terms of so, the use of endotherapy. Um,
1: so we basically want to define what is definitive treatment. Mm-hmm. So let's say we're going for, for a patient who's got stage 3a lung cancer and they're going for surgery. Mm-hmm. So surgery would be their definitive treatment. Right. Uh, so essentially treatment that's happening before their definitive treatment Mm -hmm. is called neoadjuvant or induction treatment and treatment that's happening after their definitive treatment would be called adjuvant treatment. So if you take the case of surgery, if you're going to give somebody chemotherapy before the surgery, that's neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. If you're going to give them chemotherapy after the surgery, that would be adjuvant chemotherapy. So the the purpose of these treatments is quite variable. So so for neoadjuvant treatment, a lot of the time the aim is to debulk or shrink the disease enough to allow the definitive treatment to um, be more successful. Uh, In the adjuvant setting, it's usually based on trying to improve uh, the control of micrometastatic disease. For example, If a patient was staged as a a node negative cancer, they had their operation, they found to have lymph nodes that were positive, then giving them chemo afterwards improves their survival. So, post operative radiotherapy Mm -hmm. used to be done fairly routinely in the kind of 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. And this definitely improved local control um, and local failure rate, reduced local failure rates. But when the meta-analysis was done, it showed that there was a detriment to a lot of patients. Since then, it's kind of been abandoned as an approach, because Mm -hmm. even though it improves local control, it actually worsens survival. The reason for this detriment was pulmonary and cardiac toxicity, because the disease-specific survival was essentially the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was not the cancer that was killing these patients, it was other things that were presumably caused by the radiation, right? Um, but there's a bit more finessing of this field at this point. So, so in, in the setting of somebody who's had surgery and who has not achieved a negative margin, uh, especially the bronchial resection margin, there is a very clear indication that postoperative radiotherapy improves survival mm-hmm. and local control. So for these patients, have involved margins after surgery there's no question that they would benefit from the radiation treatment whereas in patients who have had complete resection with clear margins there appears to be one small subset of patients people who have n2 disease so mediastinal lymph node disease who may benefit from the radiation but whether this actually holds true we don't know so mm-hmm. this has been tested in a, in a clinical trial setting in a trial called the lung art trial, mm-hmm. which is recently close to recruitment. So hopefully over the next two, three years, we will get some outcome from this trial, telling us whether or not this has any added benefit. So as things stand in somebody who's got complete resection with N0 or N1 disease, we should not be offering them any postoperative radiotherapy. If they have N2 disease, you may consider it in the trial setting, but since the trial is closed now, probably we shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. If they have positive margins, then we should consider offering them post-op radiotherapy. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Haridas for taking part in this podcast. Um, And that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope this has made the world of radiotherapy and lung cancer a little bit clearer And please do check out um, Dr. Haradas' chapter in the Perspectives in Cardiothoracic Surgery book, Volume 4, and he's included loads of uh, really useful information, such as summaries of uh, the relevant trials for SABRE. Uh, Thanks very much for listening to this podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, All reviews will be very welcome, so if you can leave any feedback for us, that would be great. See you next time.